From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today, we're kicking off our series on the career of filmmaker Witz Stillman, director of movies like Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Love and Friendship. It could be filmed cheaply, but look like something. It could look like something elegant and sort of aesthetic and kind of beautiful because of the subject matter. Um, so it could be shot in sort of elegant, lovely locations and have these kind of cool young people or nice young people dressed up in, in these outfits that are sort of striking and New York at Christmas time. And um, it really could look like something, not just look like a gritty, low budget, kind of gray grim film that people wouldn't want to come to. In today's show, we explore Stillman's early life, the making of Metropolitan, and the impact of its unexpected success. Stay tuned for all that after this break. Welcome to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. If you've ever seen a Witt Stillman film such as Metropolitan, the odds are you'd recognize another. Here's a clip from Metropolitan, in which the economically modest and left-leaning Tom Townsend is questioned for attending an upper-class conservative debutante party. It's actually surprising to see you at something like this. In your letters, you expressed a vehement opposition to their parties and to conventional society in general. I take it you've changed your mind. No, I'm just as much opposed to them as I've ever been. Then what made you decide to come tonight? He got an invitation. He's right. I got an invitation and didn't particularly have anything else to do. I think that's the case with almost everybody. No. Nick goes whether he's invited or not. Unlike Tom, I'm in favor of these kind of parties, and I want to show that support however I can. I don't know. It's a bit ridiculous for someone to say that they're morally opposed to Deb parties and then attend them anyways. It's, it's untenable. Everyone does. But that's no contradiction. I wasn't trying to. Well, I think it's justifiable to go once to know at first hand what it is you oppose. I'd read Veblen, but it was amazing to see that these things still go on. You're a Marxist? No, I'm a committed socialist, but not a Marxist. I favor the socialist model developed by the 19th century French social critic Fourier. You're a Fourierist? Yes. Um, Fourierism was tried in the 19th century and, and failed. I mean, wasn't Brook Farm Fourierist? It failed. That's debatable. Whether Brook Farm failed? That it ceased to exist, I'll grant you, but whether it was really a failure, I don't think can be definitively said. Well, well for me, ceasing to exist is, is failure. I mean, that's, that's pretty definitive. Well, everyone ceases to exist. That doesn't mean everyone's a failure. Each of Stillman's films feature this kind of smart, witty, multi-layered dialogue, often focusing on an ensemble of young people who've read a lot more about life than they've lived. They fear that they are at the tail end of an age of prosperity, looking ahead with apprehension, or refusing to look forward at all in favor of attempting a Gatsby-like recreation of the past. More than that, they grapple with the concept of failure in its many dimensions. Failure to develop into the person you want to be. Failure to acquire the means to live the life you want. Failure to appreciate what you have. And failure to preserve the worthwhile traditions of the past in a rapidly shifting world. Stillman, though he bristles at the affiliation, emerges out of what is called the auteur movement, a construction rooted in French criticism by Francois Truffaut, among others, writing for Cahier du Cinéma in the 1950s, as they looked back at classical Hollywood hits of the 1930s and 40s. Simply, they argued for the celebration of a filmmaker's body of work as a coherent whole. Thus, the body of work could be viewed through the lens of authorship, with the director as authority analogous to the way we view a singular ownership over the work of novels by their writers, 
or paintings by their artists. And through its growing popularity, the auteur became a symbol of independence, of freedom, and expression. A countercultural revolution like the one Peter Fonda describes in The Wild Angels. Just what is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. We want to be free to ride. And we want to be free to ride our machines without being hassled by the man. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. As the concept made its way to America in the 1960s and 70s, it transformed from a politique de auteurs to auteurism, a philosophy a filmmaker may apply actively and intentionally in building a coherent body of work, rather than this fact being observed retrospectively from afar. So when I say you'd recognize a Witt Stillman film, I mean that in what became the model of American auteurism, not the strictly Truffaultian conception. You may be saying to yourself, Okay, the guy has a voice. Who cares what film criticism category that belongs to? Well, Stillman is both a success story of American auteurism and eventually a prisoner of it. To understand Stillman, you have to grapple with the rise and fall of the American auteur. But before we go there, let's start with our subject. What is a Witt Stillman film? I asked a few critics. Here is what Fran Hopfner, who has written for the New York Times, Brightwall, Darkroom, Vulture, and many more, had to say. I define a Witt Stillman film as like a talky, youthful comedy of both manners and errors at the same time. I think manners about errors and errors about manners. Well, it's funny, youthful too, because he is very interested in youth, but uh, for a first time director when he does Metropolitan, he's 38 years old. So he sort of, he's talked to me about needing to be looking back at youth to tell that story. Is thematically, his concern seems to be the concerns of young people getting older and the uncertainty that comes from that. You think that's fair? I think that's fair. I also think there's a lot of folly in the wisdom of youth that goes explored. Um, I was recently eavesdropping on someone on public transportation making broad comments about the wisdom attained being 24 years old. <laughs> and I think a lot of that feels apparent in these Stillman films where these characters have a world weariness, but you know, they're right out of college or they're in college and they've really yet to experience any profound hardship. And perhaps because of, the, because of their social class, they never will. Yeah. I think uh, that creates some of the comedy as well, because you, you immediately get this sort of distance where you probably most audiences watching that are a little bit older and can find the humor in these, you know, 19 year olds, 20 year olds who have all these thoughts about life and, getting older and losing status and all of that. Uh, but he also has this warmth, which I think is interesting and kind of unique in the fact that he's taking characters who often are caricatures. They're these sort of snobbish, rich people. And he's able to make us laugh at them, but not lose that humanity. And so how would you describe the, the tone that he's able to amass? I think when it's at its best, it feels like a gentle ribbing. And there's a lot of affection to the, the failures and the mistakes that these characters make. I think it helps sometimes that these characters are quite stylish and attractive and interesting. 
in that maybe even if you did not like them or you to meet them at a party, you might still want to impress them a little bit. And I just think maintaining this sense of like, well, they're cool, but they're not that cool. Or they're rich, but they don't have incredible taste. Um, sort of always keeping them, you know, always giving them one little knock actually makes me care about them way more than I would otherwise. Stillman's 90s trilogy, which consists of 1990s Metropolitan, 1994's Barcelona, and 1998's The Last Days of Disco, each drew from Stillman's personal experiences and fictionalized them in stylistically and thematically linked comedies that don't directly follow the same characters, but chart a coming of age from late adolescence into adulthood in the recent past. Unlike other 90s filmmakers rising to prominence at the same time, such as Quentin Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson, who one might characterize as raised by cinema and who started making films in their early 20s, filmmakers whose professional lives have consisted only of filmmaking, Stillman consciously lived a life that did not exclusively consist of the arts. And once he had a moment to look back, he found art in the life he'd lived. Here's my conversation with Stillman about his way into the world of filmmaking. Let me just say right away, I'm a, I'm a dumb Nebraska boy, so please don't judge me for my attempts to use French words occasionally that I imagine you know how to pronounce correctly. Nebraska rules the world, we know that. <laughs> well, but uh, as far as the auteur theory, this uh, originally French concept uh, that came over to the U.S., became part of New Hollywood, one of the things that I think got uh, internalized as the auteur developed in what might be considered the truly independent 80s and then eventually this kind of corporate 90s auteur uh, as brand was uh, that there's something authentic about taking things from your life, that the way that you filter reality should have kind of this premium uh, as opposed to necessarily it's kind of moving in a genre direction. But for a while, it was sort of like you should be making movies that reflect your life the way, you know, Truffaut did. I wonder just in general, since you sort of came up as the auteur was uh, shifting, I think, in American culture, how, how much was that concept on your mind? Did, were you attempting to be an auteur? Was that even a, anything you cared about? Um, no. And I think the auteur theory, as they were originally talking about it, was that they were dealing with people like um, Howard Hawks and Hitchcock and John Ford and um and saying that they in in the way they did their films they were authors and and that was a new idea and and i think was mocked originally when it when it was heard on this side of the atlantic and they weren't really talking about the actual auteurs who had started working in films which were preston sturgis and um and billy wilder who both came out of paramount under an enlightened uh studio executive william LeBaron. And um, I think that when I was starting, there was already established people like John Sayles doing films about his experiences um, and, and Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch. And I, I guess maybe Jim Jarmusch wasn't exactly about his experience, but um, we also had... Um, Yes, the autobiographical films of Truffaut that were very influential. And they had been very influential on the Madrid comedies of my friends in the Spanish film industry because I really started getting into film thanks to an entree into Spanish films where I was selling Spanish film comedies internationally and getting to know the, uh, the directors and occasionally, in two cases, appearing in their films with 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 roles that were, in one case, 
significant in the other case small but um instructive film was something that it wasn't to my understanding like the dream the childhood dream that you wanted to become a filmmaker it sort of happened and then i think you were what 37 or 38 when you made metropolitan yes but i've been writing it uh long before then so i started writing the metropolitan script in 1984 and i'd started writing the um the barcelona script in 1983 but when i saw how complicated it would be to shoot abroad i put it aside to do something truly small which was the idea for metropolitan so you were seeing the productions and you thought what this looks like a big headache my kind of revelation year was 1983 when i was i've been selling spanish films for three years and one spanish director fernando colomo came to New York with a medium budget project, the idea of putting Candace Bergen in a film about a crazy Spanish painter. And that was really hard to get off the ground, but he was having really funny experiences at that time. So he brought over a wonderful comic actor from Spain, Antonio Racines, and a cinematographer. And with a group of like four or five people um, made a really funny film called Skyline that actually showed in new directors, new films at MoMA in New York in 1984 and got American distribution. And I got to play sort of myself in that. Um, I played his agent. Then the same summer, another director whose films I was um, selling, Fernando Treba, who later won an Oscar for Belle Epoque, he put me in his film as the love rival, the bad American uh, psychiatrist who is the uh, love rival to the lead. Dr. Mortimer Peabody. So I got to be on set in Madrid for a whole summer because I was the least important person on the schedule. So I, I didn't have dates that were put together. And it was, it was really huge. It's sort of my film school to see what he was doing. Was there a part of you that wanted to continue to play the sort of evil American in Spanish films as an actor? Well, it was more the stupid American, the silly American, actually, the Bobo Americano, the, the person who sort of speaks Spanish in a way they find humorous, um, because I learned Spanish in Mexico, and I still have traits of my Mexican Spanish, which I think they, they find cute, this American with, uh, with Spanish ways of talk, with Mexican ways of talking. I, I love Mexico. Uh, that was a very formative experience. Um, heartbroken going to Mexico to learn um, Spanish at age 19. And that was my first film experience um, on a Peter Ustinov set. They were shooting a film in Cuernavaca, Mexico, and I got to be an extra. What was it that brought you to Mexico? Was it for that movie? Well, um, I'd been dumped by a Radcliffe girl at the beginning of um, sophomore year, and I was crushed, and I couldn't face um, the second half of sophomore year. And I had cousins in Mexico, an aunt of mine had married a, a charming Mexican man, and I had six cousins there. And there was uh, friends had been studying Spanish at, in Cuernavaca. It was sort of the place to go to study Spanish and uh, I had housing. So I actually called my aunt to stay for the weekend, but I ended up staying for six months um, and learning Spanish, which was important for me. Well, was that sort of the moment then when film entered your uh, your mind as a potential career, that experience as an, as an extra? I was actually very interested in musical theater. Um, I was trying to write hasty pudding shows. I was writing scripts for this these silly musical comedies they put on 
at, at Harvard and other schools. And I think I was inspired by F. Scott Fitzgerald's experiences at, at um, Princeton writing triangle shows. A lot of um, Ivy League-style universities and perhaps others um, have these um, groups, clubs, societies that put on very silly musicals. And they started out being kind of drag shows because they would have all the parts played by men so they would normally cast the big bruisers, football types as the women, and these very um, svelte, uh, tiny types as the men. And they do ridiculous musical comedies. Um, and uh, Fitzgerald did some triangle shows. In Penn, it was called Mask and Wig. And um, in, at Columbia, I think it was called Varsity. And actually, Greta Gerwig had, was, interested, was active in Varsity shows, I believe, um, when she was at Barnard. And so it was sort of a set thing. And um, Al Franken and I both competed to write um, hasty pudding shows. His was called Semen on Broadway, which is a double entente. <laughs> and mine was called, um, I, the first one I wrote was Cortez and Montezuma. And the second was when, it was when You Wish Upon a Czar about, um, about uh, Nicholas and Alexandra. And I like the idea of the kick line. There's always a kick line like the Rockettes. And my kick line was the 10 days that shook the world based on John Reed's um, book. And so the president of the Hasty Pudding Theatricals reluctantly decided to choose his own script both years that I submitted. He very, was very reluctant to decide to choose his own <laughs> script to do. And um, But later he turned out to have a hit um, Broadway musical. So I guess he was the one who was knowledgeable about musical theater. <laughs> Well, I, I am glad you brought up Fitzgerald because I did want to talk about uh, the way that your films have often been compared to Fitzgerald and the tradition that he worked in. And then obviously Jane Austen as well, uh, particularly these yeah. 90s ones before you ended up directly adapting Austen. But I, I wondered if uh, – I mean one of the first questions I had there was because there's this literary tradition that's very known. I know you've talked about Preston Sturges and some of your filmic influences. But I don't know. Why, why not just write novels? Why make movies at all? Well – um, I had a sort of um, life-changing moment when a Harvard interviewer at my school, and my school wasn't very glorious academically, but we had really good soccer players, and he was really inter interested in the soccer players, and he wasn't interested in talking to me. And telling him what I wanted to do as a 16-year-old, I sort of realized while I was telling him that I didn't really want to do that because I just was sort of repeating all my father's ambitions in politics, my father was a democratic politician and wanted to be elected to office and all that. And I sort of decided during the interview without saying so that, no, I don't want to be that. I want to do something like Fitzgerald did. I want to write novels and that sort of stuff. So I went to Harvard with that in mind and did some of the things Fitzgerald did, such as compete for the newspaper, which is a very, very hard, grueling experience, um, which is a good thing to do, but but was was not very pleasant initially, but glad I did it. And then I was trying to write these Casey Pudding shows. And I, I was realizing as I was doing that, that I didn't really like the idea of being alone all the time. I didn't like think I had the stamina to really sit alone and write novels. And I was trying to think, like, what could I do? It's like this, but I can be with people and more sociable. And um, at the time, there were wonderful comedies on TV. There's the Mary Tyler Moore show, the Bob Newhart show, Sanford and Son, all these shows that people liked in, in my uh, 
club at Harvard. We'd, we'd sit there watching these shows, really enjoying them. And uh, I was thinking, well, go- gosh, maybe I could be in TV comedy. And I didn't really know about film comedy and what that was all about. But um, I had an elder brother who, in addition to being a, a Stalinist, uh, was very interested in film, a cineast and a film instructor at MIT and a projectionist. And so I had all his film books around and and his Andrew Saris uh, auteur theory book and the Hitchcock Truffaut interviews and and his copy of Godard's uh, uh, Masculin Femina script, which I found fascinating. So I guess coming out of college, I thought that maybe I could do that. But I also was influenced by the experience of people like T.S. Eliot and Wallace Stevens, who came out of Harvard and went into business jobs and then just wrote on the side. So I applied to a lot of banks to, to work in after college. And I was thinking I'd just write novels. And I, so I, I was typical, you know, 21-year-old, a bit lost in, in the path forward. It's interesting because as, as I was prepping for this, I, I was watching uh, when you were on Charlie Rose promoting The Last Days of Disco. And I was thinking about your comment just now that maybe being a novelist is too lonely and you want to be social and you know be surrounded by people, have to problem solve, whatever all of that entails. But you, you told Charlie Rose that you like writing movies and you like completing movies, but that, quote, the middle is not a barrel of laughs. Um, and so I thought that uh, that suggested that maybe there's a frustration of the most social part of working with people and making a movie. And maybe that's maybe that's just budgetary concerns. I don't no, know. I would, re- I would revise that. Um, I don't like writing movies. I absolutely do not like writing movies. <laughs> I like getting the idea and I like having finished. Um, those are the good, good parts. The editing room is generally pretty good. Um, that's a pretty good period. The thing is, it's very rare to be able to prepare and shoot a film. I've only done it five times and, and I guess I've directed a couple of TV shows or pilots or whatever. Um, but it's a lot, it's very little actual work um, in in a lifetime. And um, I was just thinking that we talk about people who want to go into the performing art. And I was really thinking that the problem is you don't really go into the performing arts, you go into the non-performing arts. So you want to be a ballet dancer or a singer or a filmmaker, and you actually don't get to do it that much. Um, or for most people, it's, it's hard to actually have the stage to do it on. It's a big frustration, and um, I definitely should have played my cards differently. I'm talking with writer, director, producer, and in certain Spanish films, actor Witt Stillman about his career, legacy, aspirations, and regrets. What would the Oscar nominee, director of three films in the Criterion Collection, and beloved filmmaker have done differently? We'll dive into it after this break. back to the entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Witt Stillman is a filmmaker who made a big splash in the 1990s with comedies of manners like Metropolitan, Barcelona, and The Last Days of Disco. 
The style across all three, sometimes called the doomed bourgeoisie and love trilogy, is witty, smart, and warm. A unique combination with a distinctive voice. Here's a clip from Metropolitan, which follows outsider Tom Townsend, played by Edward Clements, who finds himself morally opposed to, but intoxicated by, a group of preppy college students in New York throwing a series of debutante parties, a centuries-old tradition in which young women make their formal entrance into society. He's being confronted by Nick Smith, played by Chris Eigeman, about both his economic disparity to the wealthy attendees and his judgment of them. This is about the only economical social life you're going to find in New York. Music, drinks, entertainment, hot, nutritious meals, all at no expense to you. Basically, all you need is one suit of evening clothes and a tailcoat. Dances are either white tie or black tie, so you only need two ties. You rented that from where? A.T. Harris. Oh, good. You know about Harris. They also sell them secondhand, very inexpensively. It's a good arrangement. Thanks a lot. My resources are limited, but actually, that's not it. I know. You're opposed to these parties on principle. Yes. Exactly what principle is that? Well, the principle that one shouldn't be out at night eating hors d'oeuvres when one could be home, worrying about the less fortunate. Pretty much, yes. Has it ever occurred to you that you are the less fortunate? I mean, there's something a tiny bit arrogant about people going around feeling sorry for other people they consider less fortunate. Are the more fortunate really so terrific? Do you want some much richer guy going around saying, poor Tom Townsend doesn't even have a winter jacket? Well, I can't go to any more parties. That's a bit cynical. This is not just a matter of what you'd personally prefer. I'll tell you this in confidence. You've made a big impression on these girls. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. They like you and are now counting on you as an escort. Well, I like them too, but that doesn't... I'm not sure if you realize this. These girls are at a very vulnerable point in their lives. All of this is much more emotional and difficult for them than it is for us. They're on display. They have to call the guys up and invite them as escorts. And preppy girls mature socially much later than others do. For many of them, this is the first serious social life they've had. And if you just disappear now, well, they're going to take that as personal rejection. Give me a break. I'm not entirely joking. I'm not entirely joking. In some ways, captures the tone of all of Stillman's movies and very much the roles that Chris Eigenman played in them. Speaking to Filmmaker Magazine's Back to One podcast, here's how Eigenman characterizes finding that rhythm. I mean, I remember, I do remember with, with Metropolitan that um, certainly Witt and I were just trying to figure out how to, how to work with each other and all that, just like he was figuring out with everybody else. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those really long walk and talks and that we were, I think, doing in one, you know, and it was like there was not going to be any coverage on it. And so, and, and he came up and he was like, I, he's like, I think that's right. But I, I also think that there needs to be more exquisite bull****. And, and I was like, I know exactly what yeah, you're talking about. That's like, I know exactly. That's fine. Exquisite bull****. I have it. That, that, you know, I live in that. I got that. That's no problem. You've come to the right guy. So, you know, those are the kind of, yeah. the, the kind of, you know, discussions that he and I would have. Yeah. So, so, so he found someone in you that was able to take what he was trying to do. Like just, just the example you just said, they're exquisite bull****. Like you knew exactly what he was saying. I always um, knew 
where the joke was. Yeah. And that was really helpful in that movie. Here is more of my conversation with Stillman, where we talk about the production of Metropolitan and his reflection on a career in which he says if he could do it over again, he'd play his cards differently. What does that mean? How would, how would you play them differently? I don't know, but in the next 10 years, I hope to be more productive. Why not edit other people's movies? Why, why is it important to be the writer and the director? Because they're all their all the other people's movies are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you essentially have to have that idea and make your own movies. Um, when you approached Metropolitan, you decided, all right, I have this movie. You've been working on it for a long time. Uh, there's a point at which you had to commit to making it, and it sounds like there was the the practical consideration of it being low budget enough that you could sort of will it into existence. But uh, as far as the idea itself, why why that story? Why was that the one you wanted to sort of bet that first movie on? I think um, there are two, I think, aspects of that. One was just this sort of low-budget production beauty part. I think Woody Allen and something had a character who would talk about the beauty part of something. And the beauty part of Metropolitan is that it could be filmed cheaply but look like something. It could look like something elegant and sort of aesthetic and kind of beautiful because of the subject matter. Um, so it could be shot in sort of elegant, lovely locations and have these kind of cool young people or nice young people dressed up in these outfits that are sort of striking and New York at Christmas time. And um, it really could look like something, not just look like a gritty, low budget, kind of gray grim film that people wouldn't want to come to. So there's sort of a low budget angle, the beauty part of, of doing something like that. Although there's very little money behind the camera, it would look like there was something visual and aesthetic and rich and elegant in front of the camera. The other side is when you're writing something, you kind of want to write something that has its sort of fascination for you. And it's hard to write about things that are happening to you in the present day. Often you need 10, 15, 20 years to sort of process something, to have it sort of emerge dramatically. And so I had been deeply, deeply, I think clinically depressed. Um, I fell into a depression as I was preparing to go to Harvard. Um, I put so much hope and aspiration into getting into Harvard and going there. And I was packing, listening to the Bee Gees' greatest hits before they became disco people, which is a very maudlin album. And just this dark cloud descended. I was, I was really, I was really in bad shape, which wasn't helped by the fact that my brother sicked all his extreme radical Stalinist types to recruit us and Harvard was very radical and, and it was like revolution time and the Crimson was really rough um, crowd ideologically and as far as personalities and so everything sort of magnified this depression but by chance I was invited to, to those parties. I had had this crush on a very preppy socialite girl that was part of my process of falling in love with the Fitzgerald world because she seemed to come out of it. And um, I became friends of her friends. That's one sort of strategy if you're not succeeding with a girl to become friends of all her friends. And so her friends invited me to these parties. And um, I had this great experience with these really nice people who were really funny and, and welcoming. So I had this great two-week experience in the middle of a grim, grim 
year. And so I think later on, you know, 15 years on, it loomed as something interesting and it had sort of the unities. It, it all takes place in sort of two weeks, even less, and puts people all together in these rooms. And I was thinking, well, this could really be just shot in one big living room and just have it the after parties. But then through working on the low budget Spanish film I worked on in New York, I learned that if you spent $4,000 on an insurance policy, then you could get any kind of permit from the mayor's office to shoot in the streets of New York. I had a very muscular assistant producer who carried the camera. I mean, he carried the ladder, step ladder up uh, like 25 blocks uh, so he could put the camera on top of the ladder and, and shoot in front of the plaza. Well, and, and there's also the stress of you're working with pretty much all amateur actors who are young and trying to find that rhythm, that very particular rhythm that your script utilizes. Well, I would think actually there's less stress with the cast of Metropolitan than one could ever experience because um, it's, there are many advantages of being a no-money start, starter film um, because none of us had any barriers to working together. So there are no agents or managers or, or anything. So everyone read the scripts, you know, the, 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 what they call the sides, the, the sort of sample scenes for auditions. And I could just see what they did and, um, you know, how good they were. And these are all really good people, what they're doing. And, um, so there's really very little stress on the cast side, I have to say. And that was great. And, and, um, I had a very good, very competent, um, cinematographer, John Thomas, who walked me through everything. I mean, he was just a great guy to work with as a neophyte, ignorant uh, filmmaker. You know, he'd say, well, do you want to see the um, actor's full body? Like, do you want to see them head head to toe? And I'd say, well, yeah, that would be great. He said, well, don't you want to kind of get closer and see them, you know, from their waist as, as they walk towards you, you know? And then he'd say, well, do you want to, when you're shooting dialogue scenes, do you want to get them clean? And I say, oh, yeah, I want to get them clean. He say, oh, no, don't you want to <laughs> do an over-the-shoulder shot? And say, why would I want to do, you know, what's an over-the-shoulder shot? And he said, well, you get a little bit of the shoulder of the person they're talking to, and then the person you're, who is doing the talking. And that way, when you cut it together, it links the space. You can see where they are. And, and, and um, so he sort of laboriously explained everything to me um, very helpfully. And um, then my sort of casting off the reins of my instructor was in the middle of the second shoot we did, Barcelona, when we had very little time in a location. And I went right in to do the two shots without doing a master. And he was shocked. He said, you're not doing a master? And I said, no, we don't need a master. We'll do the two shots. Anyway. Barcelona is a beautiful movie, by the way. I just rewatched it uh, this weekend, and I think uh, just in terms of the lighting, the camera work, I don't know if it's uh, just that Spain looks so beautiful, but uh, I was really, I don't want to say I was taken aback. It sounds like I wasn't expecting it to look good, but uh, what, what a great movie, and it still looks great today. Well, you know, John Thomas, the only real award that, that film won was John Thomas's award for his cinematography. He won an Indie Spirit Award. And I asked him, like, you know, what was it about shooting Barcelona? And he said the city just looked so fantastic. And we were, you know, consciously shooting in the beautiful parts and choosing beautiful things. Um, but he, but he's also um, is magnificently talented. And we had a much bigger budget on Barcelona than we had on uh, Metropolitan. And so the city, John Thomas's talent, and, and a better budget worked together. 
So as far as visually then, it sounds like you you did not go in, at least to Metropolitan, uh, with that much of a visual plan. You don't storyboard, or I'm, I'm sure it's changed since Metropolitan, but when you went into that, did you have an idea of how you wanted to shoot the scenes, or was it always meant to be this collaboration? In indie films, it, it really does make as much sense to storyboard, because you don't really know what locations you're getting. And um, this kind of film, you know, with dialogue scenes, it's pretty classical. I think we got really lucky with some things and unlucky with others. I mean, we shot a lot of really horrible stuff that was totally embarrassing the first couple of days. Well, yeah, it sounds like you're sort of finding some of it in the moment. And I imagine working with the actors was part of that as well to figure out that rhythm, right? Because you, you, your movies do have this sort of unique style to them. Uh, the, there's kind of the idiosyncrasies of the pace, the rhythm. It's fast. The characters, uh, the way that they talk, it's not stagey. Um, usually when someone, when you watch a movie that has that much dialogue where the characters talk as much as they do, it has a, a play-like element. But I don't think yours does. I mean, how did you find the right way to pace the way that people talk in your movies and how much they talk to each other in a way that felt right or natural to you? Well, there's one of the sort of um, predilections that some filmmakers and film students have, which is they glorify long takes. And I really feel that, for me, the brilliance in cinema is is cutting, montage. And uh, I'd say the two elements in Metropolitan, which became the sort of style for all the film, is very careful framing. I care a lot about the frame, what we're going to see, and have it as beautiful or non-ugly as possible to avoid things that look like nothing and have everything look like something and be interesting in some way and then cutting having plenty of opportunities to to cut back and forth and and to move forward and change the speed of what you've done because everything you think is fast when you're on set turns out to be painfully slow when you're in the editing room so you don't see a lot of, you know, um, pans and dollies and, and other things like that um, in our films. We couldn't afford them really in, in, in Metropolitan. Um, so that became part of the style. I was curious how Stillman's collaborators might describe the process of making Metropolitan. So I talked with Taylor Nichols, who plays Charlie Black in the film, and would go on to act in several subsequent Stillman projects. Here's what he had to say. Well, I think if you had asked me at the time, did I think anyone would ever see the movie? I would say, you know, maybe Witt's mother and my own mother. Um, and that's probably about it. Uh, it, it was a, a, a world that I was very unfamiliar with and didn't really think anyone cared much about. But I think the sort of zeitgeist uh, timing of, of Witt and the movie was that the the movie audiences were fracturing a little bit and and finding these small stories that they were then you know becoming engaged with and following them. So I think a lot of people, I mean, people still talk to me today about Metropolitan and or Barcelona because they're from that world or something. But I think the wonderful thing that Wit did was open it up to other people to see inside that world. And that's partly was the timing of movies like that being made and, and partly the brilliance of Wit script. And so that was your first movie, right? Correct. Yeah. I, I'd been living in New York about five years and uh, I, I started doing musical theater and then theater and then 
Um, this was just an open call in, in backstage, an actor's newspaper that I that I went to, and it was my first movie, yes. And so it was Witt's first movie, and so I know he's talked, he, when I talked to him, he was very self-deprecating and maybe maybe downplaying some of his skill going in, but the way he described it was he didn't know how to format a script, he didn't really know how to get coverage, and so he was kind of making it up and entering this boot camp both through pre-production and then the first few days of production to even figure out how he wanted to approach it. So what was your impression right. of him when you met him and started to get involved with the project? Um, well, it's funny because there's there's a couple of different answers there. My my impression of Witt at the beginning was he knew exactly what he wanted. He he was very clear about the story that he wanted to tell and how he wanted to tell it. Um, that said, I think he's exactly right about his his understanding of filmmaking at the beginning. Um, we were really lucky to have a DP named John Thomas who went on to do Sex in the City and a bunch of other wonderful projects, uh, who, who I think really helped Wit um, figure out where to put the camera and, and how to move the camera. Not that the camera ever moves in, <laughs> in Metropolitan. It was so many of our first movie project, we were all sort of learning on the job. And I don't know who, whose quote this is, but someone said, you know, that early filmmaking, your, your mistakes be, become your style. And I think that that's partly true with Witt also. The fact that he didn't know a lot about filmmaking sort of became his style and he really trusted uh, the, the script and I think ultimately the actors too. After the break is my conversation with Stillman about his way into the world of filmmaking. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. It's easy to see through lines across Stillman's filmography and the seeds that were planted in Metropolitan, such as characters struggling with the changing world and attempting to fight against what they perceive as an increasingly pervasive vulgarity or barbarity. Sometimes ridiculously so, but as Eigenman's Nick Smith says, one gets the sense that Stillman isn't entirely joking. A lot of the reviews of your movies, the word that comes up a lot is they are polite which is an interesting descriptor. You don't hear that a lot, uh, particularly about, especially, I mean, the 90s, 90s independent movies, you know, you really think of the shadow of Pulp Fiction, which I don't see in your movies. I don't think it is really a part of that. But uh, the tone, the politeness, the, uh, you know, in some cases, the, the rejection of vulgarity is sometimes textual, even among your characters. Uh, is that part of some kind of operating uh, theory of aesthetics for you, or is it just sort of uh, the way you are and the way your characters reflect you and things you maybe do or don't like to talk about? Well, I actually haven't seen that reference to politeness. Uh, in the, I, I haven't remarked on that reference to, to politeness um, in, in the criticism, but I think it's totally correct. Uh, and uh, I would embrace that. And yes, I feel very strongly about vulgarity. I don't like it. And I think vulgarity is blasphemous. And um, I, I try to avoid it however I can. What's that rooted in? Why, why is vulgarity bad in, in art? 
Well, I think we get into theology there. Um, what is our purpose? Um, if, and I think it's to glorify God, and therefore I don't think it's glorifying God to be vulgar. Metropolitan does this interesting trick early on where you start with Audrey Roger crying. That's the first scene. And I think the audience, for the most part, would imagine, okay, sh- this is her story. This is her movie. And then fairly quickly we switch gears and it's more of Tom Townsend's story as the outsider to this world of the doomed bourgeoisie. What, was that something where you wanted to juxtapose maybe the, the concerns and the stresses of the very comfortable with the less so? Or why start with Audrey in that way? Well, you really put your finger on something. Um, there was a big issue in preparing the script, which is that it started out being kind of a conventional story. And then as I went through it, I saw the actual situation. He's not very sympathetic. It's not very interesting, his trajectory and his point of view. And he's a bit of a, a bump in the log. He's, you know, he's in love with this pretty charming popular girl and ignoring the really nice girl who likes him and and so it seemed to me that it really should be audrey's film audrey's story and i tried to make it audrey's story and put that in also to show that you know a lot of the people going to these parties are pretty unhappy about it i think it's particularly the people who suppose they're having the party who's oh it's your day it's your big party and I think they don't really like the attention and feel self-conscious and um, they're the unhappiest people sometimes involved. Other people are just crashers or guests or just having an okay time, free drinks, etc. And so I thought it was a way of maybe having the audience hate the characters less by having, you know, showing, you know, the sort of suffering that, that people go through even in such apparently socially inane context and it's so classic that people that age worry about their bodies and how they look and how their dress is going to make them look and what their younger brother might have said and it's a very tough scene to shoot because we didn't really have um, professional actors to play the adult parts Um, we were not a SAG film and I couldn't really um, cast um, older people and uh, one of the actresses um, uh, mothers came to the set to wish her happy birthday and asked her if she'd play Audrey's mother in that scene and and she very kindly agreed to it but she was very nervous and um, we kept worrying about that scene. This is the scene. It's the opening of Metropolitan. It features Carolyn Farina as Audrey Roger and Linda Gillies as her mother. You mustn't listen to what your younger brother says. I can't think of anyone less an authority on female anatomy. You can see it's enormous. No, it isn't. It's hideous. Why don't you show me that dress again? It is a bit full here. Let me have it. So you were just, were you hoping that somebody would come to the set you could cast in a moment? You really didn't have a, a plan? No, we, were, we were trying to cast people. You know, we were looking at people. But this woman came to the set who really was from that world. And, she, you know, she would have the clothes. She would have the accent. It was the best solution. And um, I think it ended up being fine. It's just, you know, I suffered when I'd see friends and acquaintances helping out with the film and then doing what I do, which is get very nervous 
with the microphone and, and sort of freezing up a little bit. And maybe other people don't notice it as much as I do because I know them personally. And so I see how changed they are on set. So the man at the bar later in the movie is someone I know well, who's absolutely uninhibited, brave, courageous litigator. I mean, terrifyingly <laughs> liberated. Um, but when he came in front of the camera, he got very nervous and the editor had to find a solution to, to that in the editing room. And he found a brilliant solution. Now it's one of the most popular scenes in the movie. Here's a clip from this scene where Roger W. Kirby plays the man at the bar talking to Tom Townsend and Charlie Black about the prospect of the preppy class being doomed. Do you think it's true, though, that generally speaking, people from this sort of background are doomed to failure? Doomed? That would uh, be far easier. No, we we simply fail without being doomed. But but you feel that you have failed. Yeah. You can still afford to come to places like this, though. Well, I'm not destitute. I've got a good job that pays decently. It's just that it's also mediocre, so unimpressive. Uh, the acid test is whether you take any pleasure in responding to the question, what do you do? I can't bear it. We've had a lot of um, showings all around the country. And so often I go in just at the moment when there's the man at the bar scene to, to wait for the end of the movie for the Q&A or whatever. So I get to see it a lot. And I always thought there are four protagonists in the film. What made Metropolitan sort of different from quite a few films is it has the Tom Townsend protagonism, Audrey Rouget protagonism, the Chris Eigman, Nick Smith protagonism, and the, the Taylor Nichols, Charlie Black protagonist, I'm talking about sociology and how they're doomed and all that. And, and, and I think it's also the man at the bar is also another protagonist. He's the older generation protagonist. And it's unusual, I guess, in films because in commercial cinema, very often it's built on stars. So there are only one or two really important characters because it's star casting situation. And in low budget, you have the liberty of, of doing ensembles. One of the things that you touched upon a little bit ago was trying to make your characters in Metropolitan relatable. Um, and particularly, I think there's this interesting relationship that a lot of moviegoers or audiences of media in general have with uh, elites or rich characters where sometimes you're sort of trained to dislike them or find them kind of morbidly fascinating, even if you aren't rooting for them. I think of popular shows right now like Succession or The White Lotus or kind of love-hate. <laughs> it's, it's not uh, – you know, it, it, there's a darkness to the relationship that viewers have with that kind of media. And um, Lucy Sant wrote in the Criterion essay for Metropolitan that retroactively the film, quote, looks positively prophetic in its choice of villain. The smirking ponytailed sloniker may possess a bona fide title, but he is the future of the moneyed class. Trashy, smug, narcissistic, abusive, enthroned in his Hamptons beach house. So uh, I thought that was that was an interesting insight. And I wonder how you think about the public's relationship with these kinds of elite characters and if that's shifted since you made Metropolitan. Well, I sometimes am tempted to pat ourselves on the back for humanizing characters from an unpopular milieu and that kind of thing. But then it turns out we do use this very cliche two-dimensional cad in the Rick von Sloniker, the Baron Rick von Sloniker character. And so I resorted to the cliche villain also. And I think it probably helped Metropolitan's popularity having such an odious guy. People like to have someone to hate, in other words, and you gave them one? Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. 
it does help you. It's not very good in, in sort of human terms to sort of, um, you know, denigrate people, characters in that way, probably. Um, but in, in in stories, it's, it's very helpful. Well, it makes me think about um, the way that there isn't really a clear villainy in your other movies. There are forces at work or maybe some, to some extent society and its changes can have a kind of villainy, but you don't really have other characters that are that openly unsympathetic or you give them some kind of sympathetic dimension. Is that a fair statement of uh, the other characters you've worked with since Metropolitan? Yes. I think also an example of that is the Ramon character in Barcelona Mm -hmm. who there's a rapprochement with Ramon at the end of the film. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a good thing to have such a two-dimensional, awful guy. Uh, but I don't know. It's it was it was, sort of became entertaining. <laughs> Against the odds, Metropolitan went on to play at the Sundance Film Festival, gross seven million dollars at the box office against a budget of two hundred and twenty-five thousand. And it scored an Academy Award nomination for its screenplay, launching several careers and a legacy that still inspires screenings today. In our next show, we'll explore its release, legacy, and the pressure to craft a career as Stillman moved into a world of bigger budgets and studio filmmaking. What exactly are you doing here? I'm sort of an advance man for the Sixth Fleet. That's going to be really tough. It's an assignment that will require a lot of diplomacy and tact. Stillman would follow up Metropolitan with Barcelona, a comedy of manners about expats in Spain, and then take a hard left turn into network television, directing an episode of Homicide, Life on the Street. That's next time on The Entertainment. I don't think anti-Americanism is really all that significant a phenomenon. It's certainly nothing to take personally. But you seem very intelligent for an American. Well, I'm not. He's a complex and in some ways dangerous man. Just once, I'd like to go out with a girl not convinced I'm encased in black leather underwear. That bothers you? Everybody limbo. The Entertainment is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. It is produced by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from Metropolitan, Jules and Jim, The Wild Angels, and Filmmaker Magazine's podcast, Back to One. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.